All right, so we're doing another open study tonight. If you want to find this later on Sermon Audio, this will be open study number 84. And I just want to uh, tackle one big question, attach, of course, one uh, hopefully biblical answer to it tonight. Uh, One question from chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to read the portion. I'm going to uh, share the question that was asked. And then um, what we're going to do is we're going to answer the question tonight, but I'm also going to do some kind of brief overview or introductory material for rightly interpreting the entire book of Revelation and then specifically attaching that introductory material to what we're going to be uh, studying tonight. So uh, Revelation chapter 11, which is a key passage in the book, um, we're going to read just the first 12 verses. Uh, John is speaking here. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, this doesn't directly relate to what we're going to be studying tonight, but this is, uh, this is connected to a key portion in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, th- this time frame, I'm going to refer to it again uh, in a few minutes, Uh, But 42 months in the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar uh, of those days equaled how much of a time period in terms of years? Three and a half years, years exactly. All right. So they will trample, the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Uh, In terms of years, how long of a time period is 1260 days on the Hebrew calendar? Anybody want to venture a a wild guess? Exactly three and a half years, exactly 42 months, both. So there are different ways throughout these key prophetic portions, like the one we're studying, there are different ways that the Lord uh, identifies the key time period that's in focus, one of which is he refers to it by the number of months, one of which he refers to it by the number of days, and in another portion he refers to it by the number of years, but all of it referring to the same exact time period, a critically important three and a half year time period, which in other portions of scripture, like in Matthew 24 that we've studied not too terribly long ago as we were working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, is the time period that Jesus referred to as the the tribulation, the great tribulation. So they will, these two witnesses, will be granted authority by the Lord and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. We'll come back to that description. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Uh, we won't have time uh, to go into this detailed connection tonight, but that verse is specifically connected back to a key portion in one of the Zechariah prophecies where he referred to the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And if anyone would harm them, and of course, since they're the messengers of the Lord, 
the prophets of the Lord, um, if anyone is harming them, they're, they're acting against the Lord's interests and against the Lord's messengers. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth. This is from the mouth of the witnesses. Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, these two witnesses in this passage are never specifically named. They're not given names here in the passage. But their activities are described. And those activities, if we're familiar with the story, key two key stories in the Old Testament, uh, two key ministries in the Old Testament, it should like kind of it should spark a point of, of, of connection for us in that the miracles they're doing, fire coming out of their mouths and consuming their foes, um, power to shut the sky so there's no rain on the land during the time of their prophesying, um, power over the water to turn it into blood, and then the ability to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That should remind us of two very critically important prophetic ministries in the Old Testament. Those are the ministries of Moses and the ministries of Elijah the prophet. Moses, of course, um, the first of the great plagues that God brought upon Egypt through the ministry of Moses was the turning of the Nile into a river of blood. And then beyond that, striking the earth with every kind of plague, which is described in verse at the end of verse 6, the rest of the ten plagues, the, the remaining nine plagues. And then in the ministry of, of uh, Elijah, of course, uh, he called fire down upon his foes from heaven and consumed them. And he also, by God's uh, grace and power, he uh, shut the heavens so that there would be no rain for a three-year period upon the earth uh, during the time of his prophesying. So... Um, this should immediately remind us of those two important prophetic ministries. We'll come back to that as well. Um, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. The great city is, without being named here specifically, is the city of Jerusalem. But it's identified here using two unexpected names that would ordinarily never by a faithful Israelite be considered as right identifiers of the city of Jerusalem. But in the eyes of the Lord, at this point in his relationship with Jerusalem, he sees these two names that are mentioned next as right identifiers, what Jerusalem was actually like at this point. And that is, uh, as he describes here, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom, of course, should immediately spark a remembrance of that story. Uh, It was a morally corrupt city that was only at that point of corruption, that level, that overflow of corruption morally, was only fitting for an outpoured judgment of the Lord upon the city, meaning it was a city waiting for its deserved judgment. And of course, Egypt 
is not a city, but it was a great nation. It was a dominant nation at the point in history that the Lord dealt with Egypt during the time of the Exodus. And what did the Lord do with Egypt? Because Egypt was given entirely over to idolatry. They worshiped 10 major gods. That's why there were 10 plagues poured out upon the nation. One plague per each idolatrous god that was worshiped. And as a result, Egypt as a nation was a nation only waiting for its well-deserved judgment from heaven. So both of these symbolic names that are now being attached by John to the city of Jerusalem are telling us in advance that Jerusalem is a city that is deserving and waiting for the judgment of the Lord. Even if the inhabitants of the city don't see that, the Lord sees that and John sees that and he's communicating that with the readers of the book. And we know for sure he's talking about Jerusalem because of the last phrase in verse 8, where their Lord was crucified. The city where their Lord was crucified. So obviously this is uh, Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, the dead bodies of these two prophets, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like Christmas time for the wicked. They're uh, finding joy in the death of these two convicting prophetic uh, presences and ministries. Uh, Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, meaning return to heaven, basically. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is a, a part of a sequence of woes being poured out upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, the question that was asked was fairly simple, fairly straightforward. Who are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 12? So I I intend tonight to very specifically answer that question, but in order to answer it with what I hope to be clear understanding on your part as to how I arrived at that answer, I need to do some introductory material on the whole book of Revelation, and then we'll attach the principles from the introduction to how we answer that specific question. And we'll do that again next week, Lord willing, where I will attempt to answer a couple more questions from the book of Revelation uh, as well. All right, so the book of Revelation as a whole, I asked you just a moment ago, how many of you still consider the book of Revelation to be somewhat mysterious? And most of you raised your hand, and rightly so. It is a a challenging book. It's a difficult book. It's certainly not easy. And if you've listened to various Bible prophecy teachers, there are different viewpoints, different ways to, to tackle interpreting and understanding the book. There are four primary ways to understand the book. They're not all four right. They're not all four, you know, it's not like there are four right ways to read the book of Revelation and to understand it, but there are four legitimate attempts to interpret it and to teach it that have been formed 
through the history of the study of the book of Revelation for the last 2,000 years of church history. So I'm going to give you a brief description of those four approaches. Um, I'm going to save the one that I hold to, to uh, mention in the fourth place. The first view was no, is known as the spiritual view. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a cheat name, cheat, in that all four of these views are spiritual. You know, they're all four spiritual interpretations of a spiritual revelation. But by calling your viewpoint spiritual, what are you basically saying? <laughs> oh, we're more, this viewpoint's more spiritual than the others, which are kind of natural. Um, so anyway, the spiritual viewpoint, which I completely disagree with, um, attempts to apply all of the events that are described in the book of Revelation to every generation of church history equally. All right, now, there's a right and a wrong aspect of this. The right aspect is this. We learn from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what key principle about Scripture. All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is beneficial to us for, for four primary purposes. And that is to instruct us or to teach us. It's to convict our hearts, it's to correct our behaviors, and it's to train us in new ways of righteousness. All scripture is, is revealed and written for that fourfold purpose in a believer's life. That includes the book of Revelation. So in that sense, the book of Revelation can be and was meant to be read by every successive generation since the generation where it was first written, the first century, every successive generation of Christians was meant to, to read this book as the word of God and to be instructed by it, convicted by it, corrected by it, and trained by it. So in that sense, it does apply to every generation of Christianity. But the events in the book do not apply equally to every time period of church history. The events are focused on one specific time period. Now the problem comes in and rightly identify which time period is addressing, but the spiritual view says that doesn't even matter. Because, you know, if it's talking about, um, you know, the, the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is an issue in every generation of Christianity, and we've always got to be on guard against taking the mark of the beast. No, not exactly true. Not exactly true. It, it was an issue in a specific generation, or if you hold the other viewpoint, it will be an issue in a specific generation, possibly the one we're living in. So that's the first view, the spiritual view. The second viewpoint is kind of similar, but a little bit different. It's called the historic view or the historical view, and it ties the events of the book of Revelation to specific events of church history, but in a progressive way, meaning that at key points in church history, the entire book of Revelation is fulfilled, but it might part of it might be fulfilled in the year 800, another part might be fulfilled in the year 1200, another part might be fulfilled in the year 1500, and we're simply to look back at church history and find those key events which describe the fulfillment of what was being prophesied. For instance, those who hold this view, generally speaking, uh, see the Roman Catholic Church and the development of the Roman Catholic Church as the big problem that's being described in this book. Uh, I understand 
what their motivation was. A lot of the reformers held this view. Uh, great men of God that we still listen to and learn from and study to this day. But on this point, they were completely 100% off base. For instance, they believed that the so-called beast, or even though the Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation, like most think he is, they would identify the Antichrist figure with the Pope. So the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church is the Antichrist. And while the Pope may be off base, and certainly is spiritually off base, he's not the Antichrist figure that's being described in Scripture. All right, so that's the second viewpoint. The third viewpoint, which is by far in our present generation, by far the most uh, widely held view. It's the most popular view. And I've talked many times about this. It's connected to dispensationalism, but the viewpoint in, in terms of interpreting the book of Revelation is known as the futurist view, which says this, that John was given a revelation 2,000 years ago that really had nothing whatsoever to do with John's present generation and the events going on in John and the believers that lived in those days, immediate future. Instead, what the Lord was doing was giving a revelation to John that would only begin to be fulfilled some 2,000 years in the future in our time frame. And that while those things haven't happened yet, that they're just on the verge of happening. Like, for instance, the, uh, the recent stuff that just this week has been going on in Israel. I, I, I meant to mention it Sunday. I just ran short on time, but, and we were studying something completely different, of course. But um, I was going to mention Sunday that just watch, because the, the invasion of Israel had happened. When did it happen? Was it last Saturday or last Friday? And... And so we were together on Sunday, and I was, I was going to share with you, just watch, the dispensational Bible prophecy teachers are going to start coming out of the woodwork in this coming week. And you're going to hear them say that the events of what's happening in Israel are Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before your eyes. And that's exactly what happened this week. Greg Laurie, as an example, who is by far one of the most leading dispensational Bible prophecy pastors in our generation, um, I happened to catch a clip of him telling his church this last Sunday, uh, this thing that's happening in Israel right now, you are seeing Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before your eyes, and this is leading to the fulfillment of all the events in the book of Revelation, including the one that we're tackling tonight. Um, so all of the events in the book of Revelation in the futurist view are events that, are, that immediately precede the second coming of Christ. Um, I've made lots and lots of case, uh, lots and lots of studies uh, in terms of why I completely disagree with the futurist view, even though at one point I held that view myself because it was the first view of understanding the book of Revelation that I was ever taught as a brand new believer. My impression was this is what because none of the teachers that were teaching me then ever bothered to mention to me, there are four different ways to possibly interpret the book of Revelation. This view we're teaching you is just one of those four ways. I was taught this is the only way to read the book and to understand the book and apply the book. So um, it was only through my own uh, in-depth study of all of God's word, including the book of Revelation, that I became convinced and fully convinced 
that the futurist view misreads, misunderstands, and therefore misapplies uh, the events that are described in the book of Revelation. All right, so that brings us to the fourth view, which is, of course, my preferred view. It's got a couple of different titles to it. I don't really like one of the names that's given to it, but I'll explain uh, the purpose of that name. One is, it's called the partial preterist view. The, the reason I don't like it is if I said to you, oh yeah, I'm a partial preterist. Unless you've done in-depth theological studies in the, in the, in the subset of eschatology, you would, you would hear the words partial preterist and you'd, you'd like scratch your head and go, huh? What are you talking about? It doesn't really, it's a nonsensical title for anyone that's not fam super familiar with theological studies. So it's also known as the redemptive historical view, and that's the one that I, I would prefer it being called. But the reason it's called preterist is that's simply a theological term, which means past. And a partial preterist view is, is saying the book of Revelation was primarily, mostly fulfilled in the past already, and specifically in the events leading up the, to the climactic destruction of the temple and the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, in the events of 70 AD. That doesn't mean it only speaks to those events. There is some material at the end of the book that speaks to the far distant future into eternity, but the vast majority of the book of Revelation is past-focused, not future-focused. So that's the viewpoint I hold. Why do I hold that view? And what does this have to do with us answering the question, who are the two witnesses in Revelation 11? Let's go back to chapter 1. To me, if you read the Bible as the futurists insist we must, which is the plain and literal meaning of the text, then you can conclude nothing else than this is primarily written to describe events in the near future to the days of John as he was writing it. So let's read the first three verses of Revelation. And it, you only need these three verses. I'll give you some more material besides these three, but you only need these three verses to convince your heart's perspective that John is writing about events in his near future. He's not writing about events 2,000 years in the far distant future. So let's read from verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things which must, underline the word must if you like to underline your Bible, the things that must soon take place. Now, you've heard me on occasion refer to original Greek words and say, well, you know, the original Greek word has a little bit different emphasis or maybe even a radically different meaning than the one that, for whatever reason, the translators chose to, to represent that Greek word in the English translation. That's not the case here. In this case, the Greek word that was chosen by John means soon. And the English word that the translator chose to represent that Greek word was rightly and effectively chosen. And it, the English word soon means soon. So if I said to you, okay, listen, um, we're going to get back to our study on Christ in the Old Testament when I finish these studies, these open studies, answering a couple of questions from the book of Revelation. But we're going to get back to our study on Christ in the Old Testament soon. 
what would you think I was implying or indicating? How long would it take? I'll tell you how long it wouldn't take. 2,000 years from now, I'm going to get back to the study on Christ in the Old Testament. It would be of no great benefit to you, would it? If I said to you, we're going to get back to that study soon, but I never actually got back to it as long as you were alive. You're dead now. You're with the Lord now. And soon keeps getting stretched beyond all meaning of the word. If the fulfillment of the things that are described in the book of Revelation were not meant to be understood any other way than 2,000 years in the future, why did the Lord choose to inspire John to use the word soon when he should have then used what word instead? The things that will eventually take place or the things that will later take place. Either one of those would have been an understandable communication that there is going to be a long delay between when John wrote these words and when we see the fulfillment of the things that he's describing. But he intentionally chooses the word soon to indicate something that's just about to happen. Because soon means soon. Now, that's not the only emphasis. Let's read on. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And who read it aloud first? Who, who fulfilled this pronounced blessing by John to the recipients of this letter. Who fulfilled that first? Now, I'm reading it aloud to you right now. So we are also blessed, but we weren't the first ones blessed. The first ones blessed were the first recipients of the letter, meaning the first churches. And who? what churches were chosen to receive this letter? The seven that we've been studying on our recent Sunday service studies. And then eventually... Beyond those seven, it was disseminated to the other churches throughout the Roman Empire, all the churches that were in existence at that time. But he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. The point is, there's a special blessing to read the words because they're going to prepare the hearts of the people to go through and experience the events that are about to be described later in the book. Now he goes on to say, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for, this is an explanatory phrase, this is why you'll be so blessed by reading this warning about what's coming, for the time is near. Again, this is a simple translation. It's not a mysterious translation, and it's a good translation. It's a right translation. The original text conveys the same concept in the translation, agrees with it and conveys the same concept. He doesn't say, for the time is far off. He says the time is near. So there's this double emphasis. He does it twice, two different ways to make sure we don't miss it. And he does it within the first three verses, the introductory verses of the book, so that if you're paying any attention at all, you can't miss the emphasis and you're not going to read on into the book and think, oh, this is having something to do with 2,000 years into the future. When he clearly says, no, it's about events that are soon to happen, events that are near to the time that you're living. All right, now, 
Uh, let's rem let me remind you of something we studied, but this is now 10 years ago on Thursday nights. Uh, some of you were here, though, for that study when we went through. How many of you were here when we went through the book of Daniel together? So many of you were. Uh, this is a reminder from what we studied then. Um, let's skip to the end of the book, Revelation 22. Now, so why is this emphasis I'm making in this introductory material so important to answer the two witness question? Well, these are either two witnesses that had to do with the events of 70 AD, or they're two witnesses that are still to appear in our future in events that haven't yet unfolded. So that's going to change our interpretation pretty radically, don't you think? Depending upon which time frame we arrive at as the conclusion of the right understanding of the book. So Revelation 22, verse 10, a key point of information. This is now uh, the Lord Jesus speaking to John as he's concluding his revelation that he's giving to John. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now that for the time is near phrase is identical to the phrase in the first three verses that we read in the introduction in chapter one. But what's added now by the Lord is an interesting description and really a warning. He's, it's a command, but it's a command that's, that's got an element of warning to it. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, what, what did it mean to seal up the words in those days? Remember, they um, wrote the books of Scripture differently than how we publish them. We, we publish them under a, you know, a book cover nowadays uh, with um, kind of a, a binding on the back and pages that we can turn. Uh, the book of Revelation, was, as it was originally written by John, was not written uh, in, with pages that would turn. Instead, the entire book was written on a scroll, a long scroll. And then when the writing was finished, you would take the scroll and roll it up if you were going to send it to the seven churches that were the, the eventual recipients of the scroll. You would, you would roll it up in order to send it through the mail, but before you let go of that scroll that you've just rolled up, you did one other thing to ensure that it got there without being damaged or altered, any words on the scroll being altered, and what, would, what was it they would do? They would seal the scroll by dripping hot wax on the, the last overlap point of the scroll, and then there would usually be some kind of, of imprint mark that they would then um, put into the wax that would be identified by, with the author so that the recipient would know, oh, this came from John, or this came from Paul, or this came from Peter. And so the Lord is saying to John, you've just written this scroll, long scroll filled with what is now identified as 22 chapters of revelatory material. And the Lord warns him as he finishes the writing, don't seal it up. Now, does that mean that the Lord doesn't want the, the book of Revelation to be secured as it's then disseminated through the seven churches on the postal route, 
you know, from chapters two and three that we've been studying on Sunday mornings. No, of course, that's, he's not saying this in order to, I, I want it open so that anyone can scribble on it or, or, or mess with it or anything like that. He's saying, I don't want it sealed up because he gives the explanation of why not seal it. Why? Why not seal it? Because the time is near. In other words, you should be reading this and you should be getting prepared at a heart level for your own experience of the events of this book. So don't bother to seal it. I want it open. I want it read. I want it understood. I want it applied because it's about to happen. The events are about to be fulfilled. Now, let's go back as we studied in Daniel to the very last chapter of Daniel in the Old Testament, of course. And David, I would uh, take a little bit of the air conditioning if you didn't mind. It's getting a little bit stuffy for me. Of course, I'm in the upper atmosphere here, standing up. Maybe it's not as hot where you're sitting. Okay, Daniel chapter 12. And we're going to see a very similar instruction given by the Lord to Daniel the prophet with some equally important prophetic information. In fact, when we went through Daniel's prophecies, and we're talking about all the prophecies in Daniel, except for a prophetic dream back in chapter 2 that the Lord gave to King Nebuchadnezzar, other than that, all of the prophetic material is in the second half of the book of Daniel. And as the Lord gave this information to Daniel, what we discovered is much of the revelatory material in the second half of the book of Daniel is speaking about the same events that the book of Revelation is speaking about. But Daniel lived in a different time period than the Apostle John did. Daniel lived how much before the Apostle John? Does anybody remember? About 600 years prior to the Apostle. All right, so let's read from Daniel chapter 12. And verse 9, he said, this is as Daniel's job is finished now, as the recipient of these revelatory prophecies. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are, the words here he's talking about are the words of the prophecies that I've given to you. The words are, shut up and, and? Sealed. Sealed until the time of the end. So the Lord is basically saying to Daniel, I've given you revelation, I've given you prophecies, but they're not going to be widely read or widely understood because the time isn't yet. There is going to be a time for those words to be opened instead of shut and unsealed and, and read and understood rather than sealed but that time is not yet. I'm saving that time for the appropriate time, which is the time of the end. Now, when we did this study in Daniel, what we had to, what we had to wrestle with was there's two possibilities for the time of the end, and only two. It can only mean one of two things. It can mean the end of history as we know it, which, are, which is a time period 
brought about by the climactic return of the Lord Jesus to this world and what we call the second coming of Christ. That certainly is a time of the end and the greatest time of the end because it's the end of all things. And then we move into eternity from there. But there's another end that's in view in scripture that Daniel, I believe, is actually, uh, or the Lord to Daniel is referencing, and that's the end of what other end could there possibly be other than the end of history? The end of the old covenant era, which signals the beginning of the new covenant era, the great transition point, the end of one thing, the beginning of another thing. All right, now with all of that, that's simply describing to you why I am 100% convinced that the book of Revelation is written to describe events having to do with the end of the Old Covenant. Now, technically and really, but not clearly, the Old Covenant came to an end when Jesus served his disciples on the last night before he went to the cross in the Last Supper, and he said these words to them, this is the new covenant in my blood. As soon as he said those words, the old covenant technically and actually came to an end. But it did not clearly come to an end. Why? It, was, it actually ended there when he served the new covenant Lord's Supper, which all pointed to the cross as soon as Jesus died on the cross, the old covenant came to an end and the new covenant began, but it's not yet clear why. Because the temple is still standing in the city of Jerusalem. The temple in which there are animal sacrifices and Levitical priesthood and, and you know, only the old covenant way of approaching God. As long as that's still standing, it's not clear to everyone that there actually has been a covenant transition from old to new. But then once the temple was finally destroyed and the animal sacrificial system was done away with, never to reappear again in human history and still hasn't to this day, and the Levitical priesthood went away completely and the high priesthood went away completely in terms of old covenant high priesthood, all of those events happened in the events of 70 AD. All right, so with all of that, in our background, let me add one other element of, of uh, understanding about why I interpret uh, the book of Revelation the way that I do, is uh, we have a set of gospel uh, communications that are given to us in the New Testament. The set is a four book set, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Gospel of John. We studied, we spent 11 years together going in great exhaustive detail through the Gospel of Matthew on our Sunday studies. Uh, but Mark and, and Luke are very similar. And those three together are identified as, or known as in theology, the synoptic Gospels. And basically it's just a reference to the idea that, that those Gospels are framed in a kind of a historical framework. This happened first, and then this happened next, and then this happened third. Whereas the Gospel of John is written more in a thematic way, but it's still a gospel, and it's still the story of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So there is a key chapter in each one of the three synoptic gospels. We studied one of them when we studied through the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a super 
important key prophetic chapter. And it's known as the Olivet Discourse. I prefer to describe it as the Olivet Prophecy, where the Lord Jesus took his disciples in the last week of his public ministry, just before going to the cross, and he left the city of Jerusalem. He walked up the, the slope of the Mount of Olives, sat down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, looking back over the Kidron Valley, looking at the temple, which was still standing as the prominent structure in the city of Jerusalem. And his disciples called his attention to the temple. And then he called their attention to God's plans and purposes for that temple, which had to do with the destruction of that temple. And those prophecies are recorded for us in Matthew 24, the one we studied, Mark 13, and Luke 21. They're all very similar, but they all have one key phrase in those books. What's that key phrase? Truly, this, this is from Matthew's account specifically, truly, this generation will not pass away into, until all these things, the things that are described in Matthew 24, are fulfilled. And we did an, an in-depth study of the meaning of the phrase, this generation, and how futurists stretch that to refer to something other than what the simple meaning of the phrase is indicating, which is when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm telling you the truth. This generation will not pass away until all the events that I've just prophesied about in this chapter, that, you know, as we later read it in the book, uh, all these events will be fulfilled within the scope of this generation. The meaning is the generation that they're living. And the generation they're living starts in 30 AD, which starts with the climactic events of what we call the story of salvation. The death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus all took place in 30 AD. And a biblical generation is 40 years, which leads us to what critically important year on the, 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 the uh, historic calendar of Israel in those days, 70 AD. And so this generation is the focal point. Now, the question is, and theologians have, have wrestled with this, the ones that study the four gospels, why did John leave out the Olivet prophecy? As critically important as it is in Matthew's story of the gospel and Mark's story of the gospel and Luke's story of the gospel, why is it left out of the gospel of John? There's only two possible explanations. One is John just felt, you know, I've got a different assignment from Lord and it's just not important for me to include that. So I'm just gonna leave it out and I'm gonna focus on other stuff. That's possible. The other possibility is John saw by the Spirit of God the great importance of the events that Jesus prophesied about that they were living in that would be fulfilled within the scope of the next 40 year time period culminating in the events of 70 AD. And instead of leaving it out, he did exactly the opposite. And he focused even more attention to that prophecy than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. And that is what we call, I believe, the book of Revelation. 
<clears throat> the book of Revelation is also, of course, written by the Apostle John, and it's his version, in my viewpoint, of the Olivet Prophecy. And it's, instead of a single chapter, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, it's 22 chapters of that Olivet Prophecy in all of its glorious detail. All right, one last question about our overview of Revelation, then I will get to the specific answer of the two witnesses. What's the purpose of the book of Revelation overall? Uh, some believers, I think, have the idea that the book of Revelation is just God's way of confusing his people. You know, like, you know, just to save something that you'll never understand this, and I just want you to know there, there's going to be some stuff you'll just never understand this side of heaven. I don't believe that's what the book of Revelation is about. Uh, the very name and, and how the book opens up, Revelation means to bring something previously hidden out into public view. To lead what was hidden out into the open so that it now can be understood. I believe God wants us to understand it. So here's my understanding. I didn't come up with this idea. I'm just following uh, other Bible teachers that I respect in this area of eschatology. Uh, and I believe they're right on target with this perspective. The book of Revelation, I believe, serves as kind of a covenant divorce case. Thinking of, and we, we tackled this concept um, in another teaching series I did uh, just maybe three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, I don't, I don't remember exactly when. We went through the book of Malachi together. Some of you were here for that Malachi study. And I, I, I approached, or I kind of introduced this concept of a, of a divorce case. What's happening here in the book of Revelation is God is finally done with the old covenant relationship with Israel. And he's done not because, you know, he's just tired of, of the relationship he has with Israel and he just wants to wash his hands with it and be done with it. But for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation, stretching all the way back to uh, ancient Old Covenant history. Uh, the Lord had been gracious and merciful and kind and generous to his people Israel, and he had called them into a covenant relationship with himself in which he described his relationship to them as he was like a groom and they were like his bride. And all he asked of them was faithfulness. Just be faithful to me. And faithfulness in that spiritual context of a relationship with the Lord is don't go off and worship other gods. You know, remain true to me, remain faithful to me, remain committed to me, uh, maintain your allegiance to me. And Israel, throughout all their generations, there were shining examples otherwise, but overall, and far too much of Israel's history was a uh, one unfaithfulness after the other, in which the Lord described their actions as that of an adulterous bride who uh, was was having illicit relations with false idolatrous gods under, under every green tree and on every high hill. Those were the locations where they would go to, to offer their idolatrous worship. And finally, the Lord said, that's it. I'm done with it. I'm not going to allow it anymore. And um, so he, and th this is using terminology that is found in the prophecy of, of Jeremiah, he uh, says, I divorce you.
But in order to divorce, you have to, you have to make a legal case in, in um, Bible times. You can't just, there was, no, there was no thing like we have in our current generation, no fault divorce uh, or you know, divorce on the basis of irreconcilable differences as if there's no real right and wrong side to divorce cases. In, in the Lord's perspective, there's a right side and a wrong side. And he was on the right and Israel was on the wrong. And so uh, in this divorce case that the Lord is making, he, uh, in, a, in a court case, you require one thing in order to establish the truth of that thing. And the one thing that's required is you need witnesses to stand up and testify to the truth. And what's the biblical standard of the minimum requirement of witnesses in the old covenant law of Moses? Anyone remember? Minimum of two there must be at least two or three witnesses. Now, I won't take the time because I'm already burning up too much time here. But um, if you want to um, look these two passages up or you take notes and want to reference them later, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, uh, establish that principle. So who are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation? Before I name them, I will just tell you they are God's witnesses in the divorce case. And they are testifying to two things, two truths. One truth is God has remained faithful to his bride for all the generations of the covenant, from dating all the way back to Abraham, which is the one uh, originally that God formed the covenant relationship with. God has remained true and faithful to all of his covenant promises. So these two witnesses testify to that truth, and then they testify to the contrary truth, the sad truth about Israel's contribution to the marriage, which is what? Israel has, for the most part, with some shining contrary examples, but for the most part, Israel has been unfaithful like an adulterous bride to the covenant promises that they made to the Lord and have done so over and over and over again, not just like one really bad, you know, adulterous relationship. But think of, think of hundreds, if not thousands of adulterous relationships. And I don't care how much you love the person that you're currently married to, and hopefully the person you're currently married to, you will remain married to them for the rest of your life. But if that person were to be unfaithful to you in the marriage thousands of times, and you came to me for counsel, what do you think I might counsel you? It's time to end the relationship. Thousands of times indicates, you know, you've given them so much room, so much mercy, so much grace, and yet they will not change. They refuse to change. And so at a certain point, the marriage has to be ended. And of course, in Jesus' teaching about divorce uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, made it clear there's only one valid biblical grounds for divorce. And that is unfaithfulness in the marriage and to the marriage covenant promises. All right, so with that behind us, who are the two witnesses? Now, earlier I had mentioned a couple of specific names. Do you remember which names I mentioned when I read Revelation? Yeah, I mentioned Moses and Elijah. They're not the, mo they're not the only popular choices. There are those uh, Bible scholars and, you know, God bless these these scholars, because, you know, some of this stuff is, 
you know, it's, it's not super clear and it's not easy to arrive at, at clarity and conclusions. But some um, choose two different names. They choose the names Enoch and Elijah. Um, Elijah is mentioned in both cases, but why do you think Enoch and Elijah might be chosen as the two witnesses? They're the only two in the whole story of all of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. They're the only two that never died a natural death in this world. The Lord took them before they died. Um, Enoch was, was apparently translated into the presence of the Lord. The Lord took him and he was not, uh, for he walked with God. And then Elijah, of course, right at the end of his life in this world, was caught up in a chariot of fire. And, and uh, Elisha, his, his disciple, was the witness to that event. And uh, neither one died a natural death in this world in that sense. So Enoch and Elijah are two popular choices. But for sure, that's not what Revelation 11 is describing. Enoch is not described either directly or symbolically in the events of Revelation 11 because of the miracle works that are attached to these two witnesses. Again, the miracle works are clear descriptions of the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Elijah. So I will say it this way, without any concern about someone contradicting and coming up with a better case, in some sense, the two witnesses are a reference to Moses and Elijah. So the only question we have to answer now is, are we talking literal Moses and Elijah? Or are we talking a symbol of Moses and Elijah? I'm going to make the case for the symbol, and I'll describe why. If it's literal Moses and Elijah, then Moses, who of course died and uh, you know, is with the Lord now, and Elijah, who, who even though he didn't die in this world eventually, you know, he's with the Lord, and those two would have to reappear on the earth and appear specifically in the city of Jerusalem because that's what's being described in Revelation 11. And they would have to redo the miracles that they did, you know, so that they, they could be recognized in those miraculous contexts. If these are events yet in our future, and they haven't happened yet, then that's at least within the realm of possibility. So most dispensational um, and futurist Bible prophecy teachers are anticipating during a future great tribulation just before the second coming of Christ that literal Moses and Elijah will reappear on the earth in the city of Jerusalem and rework the miracles that they worked during the course of their life in this world. So that's at least possible. But the only possibility is if those events are still in our future. If, however... We take seriously Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, where these events are soon, and the time of the fulfillment of these events is near, and that these are referring to events that are going to be fulfilled in the scope of this present generation at the time that the prophecy was revealed and given, then they are events connected to 70 A.D., events and the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. If that's the case, and I'm 100% convinced that that is the case, then we can't conclude that the Lord meant, as John is writing Revelation chapter 11, that we're to look for literal Moses and Elijah, because why? 
That already happened, and literal Moses and Elijah never showed up in the city of Jerusalem in the events of 70 AD. But the, the miracles that are described in chapter 11 clearly are references to Moses and Elijah. So how can we take them? All right, let me remind you, and this is an Elijah connection, but a different one. Let me remind you of the pattern of how the Lord applied the meaning and the significance of the life and ministry of Elijah when he was describing to his disciples the ministry of John the Baptist, and he connected the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of John the Baptist in what way? He said, John has come in the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy of Elijah who is to come just before the Lord comes. So John the Baptist came just before Jesus came. And he says he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he says these words. So he is Elijah if you're willing to accept it. Now, when the Lord says, this is not a Bible prophecy teacher. I mean, yes, Jesus taught about Bible prophecy, but this is not like me, Bible prophecy teacher. When the Lord says something is the way that it is in prophecy, you can take that to the bank. There's no arguing about that. There's no four different views of that. So when Jesus says, John is Elijah, if you're willing to accept it, why, why does he add that last phrase? It's, it's going to be hard because you were expecting a literal Elijah. And literal Elijah never came back. But John came. And he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He fulfilled the Elijah prophecy. So the point being that great figures of the Old Testament, like Moses and Elijah in Revelation 11, can function symbolically and not necessarily to be taken in a literal fulfillment sense. So what would Moses and Elijah possibly symbolize? What would Moses and Elijah possibly symbolize? They, out of all the prophets of God, there were many, many prophets in the Old Testament, great men of God who served the Lord faithfully in their prophetic ministry. Out of all of them, those two, rightly by Israel, were understood to be the two most important prophets in all of Israel's history. <coughs> Moses being the most important and Elijah the second most important just after Moses. But why? What was Moses' special role in regards to his, his assignment from the Lord. He's the, he was the lawgiver. The Lord revealed the law of God to him. That makes him the most important of all of them. And then what was Elijah's secondary but, but super important role right after the role of Moses? If Moses was the lawgiver, what was Elijah in relationship to the law of God? He was the law restorer during a time of great decline and spiritual deterioration in Israel. And he brought all of the nation back to the law in his, what we would call a time of revival during Israel's history. So you have the lawgiver and the law restorer, and they each represent a category in how we describe the Old Testament. And it's not our description, it's the Lord's own description. These are known as, referring to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And those two together are a summary of all that God revealed in all of the 39 books 
of what we call the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And in the Law and the Prophets, God spoke over and over and over and over again to his people in the context of their covenant marriage relationship to his. The scriptures benefit even the unsaved, but they're written for those that are in covenant relationship with the Lord. So I am convinced that in Revelation chapter 11, the reference of Moses and Elijah without naming them is a reference to the activity of the law and the influence of the law and the prophets during a critical moment in Israel's history of its covenant relationship with the Lord. What's the most critical moment? The most critical moment is the end of the relationship leading to a divorce. The end of the relationship. And that end of the relationship was focused in a three and a half year period, also described as a 42 month period, also described as a 1260 day period, all of which was the final dissolution of the relationship. But right up until the end, the last day when the temple was finally destroyed, God through the law and the prophets was still testifying to his people and witnessing to his people. Now, I just don't have time tonight to go into all the details of the description in chapter 11, but one of the great events that happened there is they were killed in that three and a half year final period. And they lay dead in the city of Jerusalem. And then, interestingly, breath entered into them and they were raised from the dead. How could that possibly relate to the end of a covenant relationship with the Lord with one bride and the beginning of a covenant relationship with the Lord with a new bride? The idea is the law and the prophets died in a sense when this relationship dissolved. It died in the sense that the unfaithfulness of Israel and the rebellious, wicked response of Israel to the torment that the law and the prophets forced upon them by way of their accountability to the Lord through what was revealed in the word of God, that was killed in the sin and rebellion of the people. And then the Lord raised the law and the prophets to new life. And now they speak in a new and different way to a new bride in a new covenant relationship. They speak to old covenant Israel? No. Who do, they speak to? Who do the law and the prophets speak to now? Who's listening to the law and the prophets today? The church. And we're not talking about a Gentile church exclusively. The church is... Whoever has come to know the Lord by the new birth through faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, whether you started in life as a Jew or whether you started in life as a Gentile, you're part of a new bride, a new covenant people of God. And the law and the prophets still speak today in a new and resurrected way, in a more powerful way than they ever spoke, even in the old covenant, even though they were the true words of God. Uh, one last detail from... Revelation 11, we'll end with this. Um, as the law and the prophets are prof described as prophesying during this critical time period, they're, in, they're clothed in a special kind of clothing. Uh, the detail is they're clothed in sackcloth. Well, what was sackcloth all about in Bible times? Morning. Yeah, it was mor morning clothes. 
Clothes indicating there's a death and it should be mourned. What was dying there in Revelation 11? What's dying is the covenant relationship between the Lord and his old covenant people. And so the law and the prophets are clothed in sackcloth because now they're only a, they're only a, a, a ministry of death as the apostle Paul later uh, described them in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter three. Uh, they're a ministry of death to those who are living in spiritual death, but they're raised from the dead. And of course now have taken on new clothing in their resurrection their, 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 their uh, celebratory wedding clothes now as we read the Law and the Prophets uh, because they speak to us in a living way about our new and living relationship with the Lord. All right, now I totally get, that's the end of the study tonight, I totally get, I may have totally lost one or two of you. And if I did, I'm sorry for totally losing you. It's a complex, deep study. But if you want to, you know, uh, not necessarily tonight, but in the near future, if you want to uh, contact me and say, hey, I didn't really get what you said about this. Can you explain that again? Feel free. I'm glad to, to have uh, side conversations about it. This stuff is, uh, you know, it tickles me right where I, you know, like to be tickled. So um, I'm glad to talk to you about it as long as it takes. But I, I do understand it's a, it's a deep and challenging study that we undertook tonight. All right. God bless everyone. Uh, we'll be back next Thursday, Lord willing, and we'll tackle a couple more <coughs> questions from Revelation chapter 13, if you want to read ahead. God bless you.